In the book of James, it becomes very evident early on as James is writing to us that we are, as God's people, called to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Unfortunately, we are much more prone to reverse that order, uh, to be quick to speak and, and slow to listen. That is our tendency, and, and we know that. Uh, we are far more prone uh, to revise that order and to hastily offer our assumptions, inject them into a conversation, uh, perhaps even uh, force upon our hearers, uh, our, our assumptions, perhaps they've been long held, perhaps they've just been formed and are still being formed. But again, just sort of pressing that into another person without, without asking questions, without listening for the response that is given, and without engaging with one another as persons, as real persons. And you see this playing itself out in so many different arenas, in social media. This morning, quick aside, this morning I, I saw, had an email pop in my inbox. It's this neighborhood chat thing. And I observe some of the most rude comments one to another my own, in my own neighborhood regarding should we or should we not have firework displays in our neighborhood. Are you kidding me? In social media and in interpersonal reactions, we are not quick to listen and slow to speak. We are quick to speak and slow to listen. And it comes out in much bigger issues than just fireworks. I'm not belittling your concerns there, but... Things along the lines of coronavirus responses. We're moving into this fall, presidential politics. And questions and concerns pertaining to matters of racial injustice. Friends, it ought not to be this way. It's so sad to see the way that we engage with one another in these things. It's so sad. It's so sad. The Lord's people should be known as a people who indeed are maybe just standing out like lights in a dark night sky as those who indeed are quick to listen and slow to speak with one another and with the Lord Himself. And with the Lord Himself. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me now to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Uh, the text that I'm reading is Peter's report to the Jerusalem church of the events that transpired in a gathering in Caesarea that Luke has just told us all about in Acts chapter 10. So Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18 is Peter's recap of the events that you read about in Acts 10, okay? But we're only going to read chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, just for time's sake. Just chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Hear now the Word of God. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to circumcise men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, 
being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, "'Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter.'" And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, can we pray for a minute? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. And it is our prayer that it would be our prayer, that we would be humble and teachable enough to pray such things. Have mercy, O Lord Jesus, upon us, your people. We pray in your name. Amen. Some messages are hard to get through. You know this. Some messages are, are hard to get through. Let me, uh, some of you may have heard this story. I'm going to relay it to you. Uh, so there is this man who is convinced that he is dead, okay? And it's driving his, his wife and his children just nuts. They, they are exasperated with him. They keep telling him he's not dead, but he continues to say, no, no, I'm dead. They say, no, look, you're, you're walking, you're talking, you're breathing, you can't be dead. Nonetheless, the man is absolutely convinced that, and he insists that, on the idea that he is, in fact, dead. So they, they call the family doctor. They say, we've got a problem. Can you help us? He says, okay, bring him in. I'll help you. So they bring the man into the, to the family, and the man go into the doctor, and the doctor sits the man down, hears his story, and brings to him a, a, a piles of medical journals that are clearly indicating that dead men do not bleed. Okay? So the guy finally, like, okay, fine, fine, fine. I'll admit to you, doctor, dead men do not bleed. So the man immediately, excuse me, the doctor then immediately grabs the man's arm and takes his hand and takes a needle and draws some blood. And the man looks at his hand and sees the blood and then responds with this observation. Well, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. <laughs> now, that's a funny story. It's a humorous story. It's also rather sobering. 
It's also rather sobering because it points us to the danger, the reality of the effect that our assumptions can have upon our ability to hear the voice of God speaking to us in the Scriptures. It's a terrifying warning as to what the assumptions that we bring to the table can do to our ability to actually hear God's voice speaking to us in the Scriptures. His voice tells us His purposes. The voice of God relays the purposes of God for the people of God, which clearly indicate We've talked about this over the last few weeks, that we are indeed to be salt and light, a city on a hill. This next term is not from the Sermon on the Mount, but we're to be a fob, a forward operating base, a living signpost pointing to the kingdom of God that has come and is coming that has come and is is coming, part of which has to mean, and the Scriptures are very plain on this, that the church is to be a multicolored, multicultural community that is bound together by a common love, hope, and faith. It's inescapable. And the Lord is, is, is intent, He is determined, in fact, that we would know our purpose, that we would know why we are here, again, to be salt and light, the city on, on the hill. In fact, we could put it this way, this text, among other things, certainly points us in this direction. The Lord is determined to communicate His purposes to us, His people. We would do well to listen. He is determined to communicate His purposes to His people. We, we would do well to listen. Now, you ask, okay, I say that. You ask, rightfully so, how do you see that? How do you see His determination to communicate these purposes to us? Well, at least in these two ways. First, it's there in your, your outline. First, in the way that He conveys the clarity of His purposes. His, he's so, he's so, it's so clear that He wants us to be clear. So you see that. You see that. And the second thing is, is the flip side of that, and that is the stubbornness of our hearts. So the first thing is the clarity, the clarity of His plans, the way, he, the way He pushes that, conveys that upon us. And the second thing is the stubbornness of our heart, the clarity of His plans, the stubbornness of our hearts. The first point, so again, the clarity of God's plans, the way He is determined to convey that. Uh, again, this, this chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, is, is something of a recap of everything that you read there in chapter 10. There's this sense in the repetition, it would seem that the Holy Spirit, in essence, is saying to us, don't miss this. Don't miss this. So intent is God the Holy Spirit that we don't understand these things. It's not just the initial events that are recorded, but Peter's presentation, recap of the events. So big, so large does this loom, so great a shadow does this cast over the overall message of Acts that we need to hear this at least twice. So, you see these four things unfolding here, uh, the, intense, the intensity of the Lord's intent to convey all this to us. First, a vision that is granted to Peter. 
Okay, this vision that is granted to Peter. You see that in verses 4 through 10. What does he see? I'm not going to read that again, but what does he see? He sees this sheet coming down from heaven with these animals, all kinds of animals. They're upon this sheet or in the sheet. It's hard to know exactly what's going on here in this vision. That has to include, we can infer from this, both clean and unclean animals according to Jewish ceremonial dietary laws. That's what Peter sees. Okay, now what does he hear? He hears this order from the Lord himself, kill and eat. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Three times, three times this vision rolls. It rolls, it keeps coming. Okay, so you have this vision that's granted, reflecting something of the Lord's, the intensity of his intents. Second, you see this command that's given. That's verses 11 through 12. This command that's given to go with these men from, sent from Cornelius, that's a centurion that you read about there in chapter 10, this Gentile Roman soldier who sends these Gentile officers down to Peter, and Peter is commanded to go with them without any hesitation, despite the fact he is a Jew and they are Gentiles, he is commanded to go. That's, that's this, this command. And by the way, with Peter on this venture north up the coast go six witnesses, six witnesses that that there would be a testimony beyond just Peter's word, a testimony as to what it was that was going to happen. So you have this vision that God grants. You have this command that God gives. Then you see these preparations that are made. That's verses 13 through 14. Peter arrives there in Caesarea. He hears from Cornelius. He's there in his home. He's listening to what has happened. And he realizes Oh, my goodness, God has been working this from both ends. I'm not the only one who has received this vision. He has. He has as well. There's a, a deliberate arranging going on here, a sovereign providential arranging going on here because the Lord has plans for both of them, not just to meet but to be mutually changed in the process. Okay, so you have this vision that's granted. You have this command that's given. You see these preparations that are made that only God's hand could be on in terms of the timing of everything. And then the Spirit's outpouring, lest we miss this, in verses 15 through 17. Now, Peter cannot shake, he says it very plainly, he cannot shake the, the obvious similarities between what's happening there in Caesarea and what he remembered had happened in Jerusalem is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, which we were looking at last week. In fact, some scholars refer to this incident as the Gentile Pentecost. And the obvious conclusion that Peter draws from this is, well, if God so welcomed these Gentiles into his church, it is absolutely imperative, not just important, but imperative that the church welcome and embrace them as well. And he says this twice. You see it in, in verse chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 47. Peter's words there in as it's happening, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And then in chapter 11, verse 17, you see something similar, but even so, so striking in the way he says this. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now, think with me about the way he phrases that. Do you realize by implication there's a sense in which we can stand in God's way when it comes to these matters? Do you see that? 
And Peter, in his humility, recognizes it's a rhetorical question. Who am I that I could stand in God's way? Quite striking. The idea being that these events surrounding the, the conversion of Cornelius point us to the clarity of God's plans. John Stott, I mentioned him in the beginning of the service. Stott in his commentary refers to these four events there in your outline, the vision, the command, the preparations, and the pouring out of the Spirit. He refers to these things as being hammer blows, divine hammer blows upon Peter's heart. Lest he miss this. Lest he miss this. It's often said, rightly so, Jesus saves. And then sometimes the snarky question is thrown back at that, that, that statement, from what? It's actually not so snarky. If you're going to think and engage with the statement, you ought to know the fullness of what it means. Jesus saves. Saves from what? Saves from all the effects of sin. He's come to save us from all the effects of sin, which does, yes, yes, begin and include the granting of personal forgiveness. But friends, it does not stop there. It does not stop with that. Jesus came not just to bring us personal forgiveness, but to bring a cosmic renewal. You cannot read the prophets without seeing that. You cannot read the apocalyptic literature, Old and New Testament, without seeing that. The letters. Oh, goodness, can we just look at one passage, please? Colossians 1. Colossians 1, where the Apostle Paul speaks to this so plainly in this rich, beautiful, soaring description of the Lord Jesus, who He is and why He has come and what it is that He has done. Colossians 1, verse, starting in verse 18 And he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." So, yes, it is personal forgiveness that the Lord Jesus has come to bring, but it is also a cosmic renewal, such as the, the breadth and extent of His kingdom that has come and is coming, which has to mean then, thinking in terms of all the effects of sin that He's come to save us from, as far as the curse is found, that's what He's come to rescue and redeem us from. It has to include such Everyday tragic experiences as disease. One day, no more. Emptiness in my heart and yours, no more. Broken relationships, no more. Poverty, no more. Injustice, no more. Racism, no more. Because of the extent of His kingdom work and His kingdom purposes. Which means, pushing this a little further, in the logic 
It has to therein mean that in our conversations and considerations about the matters pertaining to racial injustice, we don't need to wonder if this is a gospel issue. It is. It is. It is. We don't need to wonder at all. The Lord is intent on communicating to us His purposes for us. And we would do well to listen. We would do well to listen. That then takes us to the second point. Not do we see the clarity of His purposes in these events as recorded in Acts 11. We see these hammer blows, as Stott says. But you know, you, you, you use a hammer on hard things, don't you? Isn't that when you have to use a hammer? So that takes us now not just talking about the clarity of God's purposes, but to the stubbornness of our hearts. And we see that reflected here with Peter, not to pick on Peter in any way. Peter, if he was here with us literally this morning in in body and in flesh, would say, yep, (laughs) I did that. That was me. We see the Lord's intentionality, sweet, beautiful, gracious, merciful intentionality, and the way he works with Peter. Did you note, as we were reading this earlier, did you note that when the angel comes to Cornelius, the Gentile, the man up in Caesarea that sent for Peter, did you note, and we'll read of that, that the angel doesn't come with news of Jesus? Oh, that's interesting. What does he come with? A command to send for Peter who would then tell him about Jesus. Why is that? because of a deep work that needed to take place in Peter's heart. He had to be engaged with this. He had to see this. He had to experience this. He had to be a part of it. He had to be a part of it. The Lord had plans not just for Cornelius, but for Peter. In fact, some commentators even speak of this text not even as just the conversion of Cornelius, but in some ways the conversion of Peter to the fullness of God's purposes for His people and the fullness of the gospel and the kingdom. So we see the Lord's intentionality here. We see also something of of our stubbornness, the stubbornness of our hearts and Peter's experience and his ways of engaging with this. So what does Peter know going into this? Well, he knows in the sense of a Jewish man growing up in first century Jewish culture what he knows, if you will, in terms of the air that he's breathed all his life, is that there is this impassable gulf between Jew and and Gentile, okay? It's what he's grown up. It's just what, it's, it's, it's what, it's just what he knows. It's what he thinks. It's how he feels. It's, how, it's the assumption, the presupposition that he brings to all these, th- these ideas. So there in Peter, like, like his contemporaries, his Jewish contemporaries, is struggling with this concept of favoritism and prejudice and deep-seated racial intolerance. It's true of the first century Jewish people. And yet into that, like a lightning bolt, here's the tension, 
the words of the Old Testament prophets. And then Jesus himself that speaks of all nations being brought into the kingdom of God. So Peter's struggling with this. He's struggling with this from the very outset. And you see that in his response. Certainly he just heard, we know, you read, go back and read the Gospels. And you see again and again and again how Jesus speaks to this, but, you know, Peter does not have ears to hear this. And so when he has this vision there in Joppa and this angel appearing before him, what does he say three times to the angel? By no means, Lord. Now, you know what an oxymoron that is. By no means, Lord. It didn't go very well for Peter, by the way, earlier in his life when he would say such things to Jesus face to face. It's not going to go well for him here either. But it tells us something of where his heart is and his struggle, his struggle and the depth of it. There's also something else that's worth pointing out, and that is how Peter responded to these matters later. It's not that he got settled there in, in Caesarea once and for all. Okay, we're done. Check. You're moving on. You've, you've arrived. No. Start moving with me to the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, this is just a few years later, depending on how you date the events, roughly about eight years later, and now we're not in Caesarea, we are uh, in Antioch, further up the coast now even from Caesarea. We're in Antioch, and the Apostle Paul relays to us an event that took place between him and Cephas, and that's Peter. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Oh, my goodness, what is he, what is this about? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What's happened? What happened is Peter caved. Peter caved. His experience, his struggle, points us towards the stubbornness of all our hearts, of all of our hearts in these matters when it comes to discussions about race. John Newton. John Newton's a name I know maybe all, maybe, maybe all of you know in some way. If I tell you the song, Amazing Grace, okay, so that's who penned those words many, many years ago. He was a 17th, uh, excuse me, 1700s, 18th century, not just prolific uh, hymn writer, but pastor. What you may not know is that in the years preceding that uh, time of his life, he was a slave trader. And this may surprise you, but anything but immediately upon his conversion, John Newton did not give up the slave trade upon coming to Christ. It was years. Does this surprise you? It was years that it took him to see and leave those things behind. Reflecting on those years, 
This is something he wrote in one of his letters. I have been 30 years forming my own views, and in the course of this time, some of my hills have sunk and some of my valleys have risen, but how unreasonable within me to expect all this should take place in another person and that in the course of a year or two. See, Newton, reflecting on his own experience, his own story, realizes the absolute necessity of being patient with others in theirs. Going further, he, he, he uh, uses this image. A company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, the blind beggar that Jesus restored his sight, a man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were open, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. Right? Newton's logic here is inescapable. The Lord is so patient, so patient with the stubbornness of the hearts of His people. Thank God for that. Look in the mirror and say, thank God for that. There's two implications of this. One is the absolute necessity of our being patient with others as they struggle to get things right. The absolute necessity on our part of being patient with others as they struggle to get things right. Let's be honest. Can we be honest? Questions, discussions, controversies about race, racial injustice, tag on whatever term, I, I hesitate to use any terms for fear of being misunderstood. But those matters and those discussions have a way of touching deep heart issues and churning up a lot of stuff. Those of you who went through the RW360 community group study in the last few months, you remember amygdala hijacking, emotional hijacking? Oh, gracious sakes. There's a lot of that going on. And me too. All of us. All of us when it comes to these, these matters. Oh, how we need to be willing to do the hard work of asking an honest question, listening to the answer, not formulating a response, listening to the answer and engaging with one another as persons, as persons, being willing to do the hard work that comes with that. That's the first thing, the need to be patient with one another. But there's another part to that, and that has to do with our own humility. It has to do with our own humility. We need to be patient with others as they struggle to get things right, we need to be humble enough to admit we could be wrong. We need to be humble enough to admit we could be wrong. Willing to apply the words we speak, the words we speak so quickly about human depravity to our own minds and hearts. Not just the other person's, but mine. 
willing to apply that doctrine to ourselves, willing to admit there's not an area of my life or yours that we don't have need for growth, willing to consider the possibility that we could be like John Newton writing hymns while at anchor while trading slaves at the same time. The Lord is determined to communicate His purposes to His people. We would do well to listen. We would do well to listen. Sonic warfare. Let me end with this. Sonic warfare. Some of you are familiar with what that is. It was in the news quite a bit, just uh, not quite four years ago. Uh, uh, U.S. diplomats there in Cuba experienced, possibly, not quite sure, possibly deliberately were exposed to a sonic high-frequency sound waves, frequency sound waves that, uh, at least temporarily, if not in some cases permanently, damaged hearing, caused headaches, and induced nausea. Those are sonic attacks, sonic tactics when it comes to sonic warfare. Could have been an experimental weapon in Cuba and Havana. I'm not sure. All those folks have withdrawn, been pulled out. Sonic tactics come in other forms, many other forms. Oftentimes the way some, some music is, is used. Uh, in 1942, in the, Germans, in the siege of Stalingrad, the Russians turned these huge loudspeakers towards the German troops and played Argentine salsa music all through the night to keep those troops awake. 1942. 1989, U.S. troops in the midst of the invasion of Panama played rock music, loud rock music, hard rock music all through the night until Manuel Noriega was finally willing to surrender. 2014. Russian agents played propaganda messages at the, the Russian-Ukrainian border. The Ukrainians reciprocated by playing recordings, again all through the night, of what? Songs by Cher. <laughs> the idea of all that, of course, behind that strategy, those tactics, is, is to disrupt, right? You know what it's for? to disrupt. The Lord's messaging to us through His Word is meant to disrupt. It's meant to disrupt, not to harm but to heal, not to, not to uh, enslave but to free. It should not surprise us that we as finite fallen human beings might need to be disrupted by the King of the kings and the Lord of the lords, the ones that we read of, the one that we have been singing of and read of just a few minutes ago in Colossians 1. It should not surprise us that such as us would need to be disrupted by such as Him. Perhaps in matters that we have, in opinions that we have held all our lives, it's possible. We would do well to consider that. Or maybe just opinions, opinions just recently formed. Yes, the gospel has an immediate personal impact, but it doesn't stop there. There's a cosmic impact as well. We are called as His people 
to be heralds of the king in this world, not just in word, but in deed. And he is intent that we would understand, that we would know his purposes for his people. Oh, that we would hear. Can we pray? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love, not not turning from us and ignoring us in apathy, but engaging us and willing, such as your love, to disrupt us. We are to be people of justice and mercy and faithfulness, to be salt and light, a city on a hill, heralds of our King, which among many other things has to mean we cannot take our cues from the world, whether our friends on the right or our friends on the left. The gospel is something entirely different, an otherworldly message. Oh, would you tune our ears to hear your word? Would you disrupt us where we need to be? And not surprised when even some of our most deeply and even perhaps cherished assumptions need to be challenged. These are troubled times in this land. May you make us sons and daughters of peace. We pray in your name. Amen.